All right, how are you all doing today? Everybody good? Yeah? Yeah, I'm awful. I'm, I'm awful. Uh, my daughter flew in from Arizona last night, and the flight was delayed, which meant I got to bed at 2.30 a.m. And my bedtime on a Saturday night, because I work on Sunday mornings, is usually 9 a.m. Yeah, 9 p.m., because I got to work in the a.m., yeah. See, th this is going to go terrible today, I'm telling you, which I should never admit up front, but this is going to go awful. But I I'll tell you what, we are in Christmas Unwrapped. Of course, next week, Christmas Eve services is when we finish up this series, and today we're going to unwrap our third gift. It's the gift of joy, and I want to turn to Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi. I know this is an after-Christmas story, but I think it really helps lay the joy into Christmas. So Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Stop there just for a second. The Messiah we've been waiting on for hundreds of years. Like Malachi closes our Hebrew scriptures and we've been waiting for 400 years. And now the Messiah is going to come and King Herod is disturbed. And the Jewish people in Jerusalem are disturbed? Story continues. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? Because he didn't know. He wasn't paying attention. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him as he twisted his evil mustache. It's not in the text, but I, I think that's what happened. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. Notice, not manger, not stable. When they came to the house, this is later on, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. The carol we sing about the Magi, We Three Kings, isn't quite right, of course. And I know I talked about this like a month ago, but they weren't kings. They weren't kings. They were Persian Magi, interpreters of dreams and experts in astrology. They could read the signs that were going on in the sky. They could, they could observe nature and see that something important, something spiritually important was happening in the world. And 
they had the courage to follow it up. The courage to make such a long journey into a place they didn't know with rulers they didn't know they could trust. And think about this. Pagan astrologers made their way to Jesus before any of the religious leaders. How sad is that? The Jewish Messiah is born. And it's like the religious leaders didn't notice, didn't care. Now, we don't know if there were three of them. It just says that Magi came to Jerusalem, and this group of Magi brought three gifts. So maybe there were three of them, and they each brought one gift. Or maybe there were 17 of them, and together they brought three gifts. Or maybe there were 12 of them, and they each brought three gifts, and they put them together, and they lotted them together. They all had gold. They all had frankincense. They all had more. We don't know. What we do know now is that it's very likely that one of the Magi was a woman, which might be a little surprising. But the evidence is clearly there. So how do we know that one of them was a woman? Well, they stopped and asked for directions. <laughs> which is a really bad joke. And it's also a little true, isn't it? Now, I want to introduce you to a Jewish philosopher. This is Philo of Alexandria, and he lived at the time of Jesus. Philo lived from approximately 20 B.C. until 50 A.D. So he was around for a lot of the things that happened in Jesus' life. And he wrote about this eastern school of magi that came from the Persians. And he said that it all began with the story of Daniel. So today is going to be as much about the story of Daniel as it is about the Magi. And yes, I'm talking about Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel. See, the Jewish people had been conquered at the time of Daniel. They were carried off into exile. But not all of them became slaves and peasants. The common people largely did. They became slaves and they became peasants. But not all of them. And, and the clue is found in Daniel chapter 1, at the beginning of this Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture book of his prophecy. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect. They had to be handsome. They had to show aptitude for every kind of learning. They had to be well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Because one of the things that the Babylonian king understood is it's one thing to conquer a nation and to enslave a nation of people. But you're never going to get them to assimilate, and you're never going to get them to behave on their own unless you raise up leaders of their own people. That can only last so long that you enslave people and you force them to do things. But he understood, what if you took some of the nobility, some of the royalty, the best of the best? They have to be smart. They have to be handsome. I'm not sure why. They had to be well-learned. And that way, if you can shape them and mold them, they can help lead 
their own people. It was a great tactic for assimilating the Jewish people into Babylonian culture. Again, with Daniel 1, this is verse 6. Among those who were chosen from Judah were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names because those were their Jewish names, their, their names in Hebrew. He renamed them, uh, the name Daniel, to Belshazzar. To Hananiah, he called him Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And you know their story. This is in the book of Daniel. Most of the time we read the book of Daniel and we think Daniel in the lion's den. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in the fiery furnace. We know these stories. But the truth is the fiery furnace and the lion's den aren't really the point of the book of Daniel. It is such a bigger story to tell. Such a more important meaning to tell. But that's the story of these guys. And then as they're trying to assimilate them, these four and maybe a few others who were thought of the elite of the elite, the best of the best of the Jewish people, they were invited to eat at the king's table. The problem is the king's table didn't have Jewish kosher food. They'd be forced to eat things that were not in their food code, according to the Old Testament. Things like shellfish, things like bacon, which are obviously delicious, but it wasn't a part of their food code. And not only that, they knew that the king would be serving lots of wine at the table. And so the last thing that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to do was to somehow compromise their faith, even in the midst of serving under the Babylonian king. So in verse 8, Daniel has a request. He resolved in himself not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, the chief official wasn't happy with this. He's like, of course, you need to eat all this good food. You need to be strong. You need to be fit. So Daniel said, well, test us. Test us for a period of time. Just let us eat vegetables. Let us eat according to our food code, what is available, and then see how we look at the end. And they were found to be superior. They were, they were found to be completely healthy. And this went well for Daniel. Now, a little bit later, the different magi who were already serving the king, they were not able to interpret something that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was troubled because he had dreams, but he didn't know what they mean. And it gets to the point where he's actually ready to execute all the magi in Babylon. He's ready to kill them all because he's like, I guess your science and your magic and your abilities, they're fake. Because you need to help your king and you can't help your king. But Daniel, instead, he steps up. And when the king asks him, well, can you interpret this dream? Daniel replies, no. Nobody can interpret this dream. I can't interpret this dream. I guarantee you a diviner or a magician, a philosopher, they can't interpret this dream. Only God can interpret dreams. And let me tell you what God says. So Daniel isn't giving himself props. He's propping up God, which is really, really important. And then he explains the dream. He explains the dream, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, four kingdoms 
will then replace each other until finally God himself will set up a kingdom that will never end. Now, St. Jerome, he's a scholar in the early church. St. Jerome and other scholars said that Daniel was speaking about Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which was then replaced by Persia, which was then replaced by Greece, and then finally replaced by Rome. And then, of course, Rome was ruling when Jesus was born. And the kingdom of God would enter the world when Jesus entered the world. And that would be a kingdom that will never end. And hundreds of years later, Daniel's prophecy came to be true. Babylon was replaced by Persia. Persia was replaced by Greece. And Greece was replaced by Rome. And Nebuchadnezzar, he believed Daniel. In fact, it says that he began to worship his God, which is an amazing change of events for people that have been enslaved. Now you have the king of a foreign nation actually worshiping your God. And he made Daniel, get this, chief of the Magi. And then later on, under Nebuchadnezzar and then later Cyrus and Darius, Daniel was made the administrator over the whole kingdom. Which is to say that Daniel was in charge of everything except for the king himself. Which reminds you a little of the story of Joseph. Joseph under Pharaoh. You know, God has an amazing way. It's like a retelling of the story of the Jewish people from far before. God has an amazing way of taking really crummy circumstances and using them for his good. Remember that in your own life. You can go through some stuff, and you don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But don't you think God might be scheming behind the scenes? Like God might be able to use it for his purpose. Yes, the brokenness of the world, like something has happened, and, and this is not God's will. But don't you think God is always ready to get his will done? He is. He is. God has a funny way of using our tough circumstances to advance his work. And see, we thought Daniel was all about a lion's den. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And it lays the groundwork for our Christmas story today. So how did the Magi know the Jewish scriptures? And why were they willing to follow that star? And why were they willing to journey for hundreds of miles? The answer is Daniel. He placed the writings and the teachings of the Jewish people among the scrolls and among the learning of the Magi of Babylon and later on Persia. They had been waiting for this time. They had been waiting for that star for 400 years, just as the book of Daniel foretold. Because Magi, they studied ancient scriptures they studied astronomy and alchemy, which is, which, which is a, a, it's a science related to chemistry. And one of their influences, this is interesting, one of the inf influences of the Babylonians was the, the Jewish uh, person named Balaam. You might remember the story of Balaam and the donkey. That's way back in the Hebrew scriptures. This is a sorcerer whom God used to send a prophetic message about the coming of the Messiah. 
And the Magi knew the scripture, and this is one of the two scriptures they put together in order to understand that they have to follow a star. This is in Numbers 24. It reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. See, Daniel too, he had a vision about Christ as well. A message that would come from the angel Gabriel. Daniel says this in Daniel 9. Know and understand this. From this time, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler, he will come and there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Daniel's starting to predict the date itself. And it's the time for that anointed one that Daniel mentions for the time for him to arrive. It's thought that the Magi joined these two prophecies together. And then they were ready and alert for the sign of the star to guide them. And then they recognized it in the sky. And they felt led to follow it. And of course, the gifts. What are the gifts they brought? This is called Christmas Unwrapped. This is about unwrapping different gifts. We know a lot of times at Christmas, you get so excited about the gifts. So what were the gifts that they brought? Well, those three gifts all point to the three offices of the Messiah. They brought gold because Jesus is a king. The Jewish people, they prized gold. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant, it was overlaid with pure gold. The mercy seat of the tabernacle and the cups of Solomon, they all contained gold. Everywhere you looked in the temple, the utensils, the candlesticks, the dishes, the bowls, the curtain rods, they were covered in gold. They also brought frankincense because Jesus is a priest. Frankincense is a fragrant resin that comes from a type of tree found in Arabia and Palestine. This resin already had a history. It was being used in the temple. Whenever the prayers would go up, they would also put up smoke from incense. The priests in the temple, they utilized it as a base of incense as well as an ingredient in the meat offerings. These are the prayers that they made, the sacrifices they made on behalf of the Jewish people. So Jesus would be a king and he would be a priest and he would also be a prophet. And that's why they brought him myrrh. And according to some scholars, myrrh had a greater value than gold at the time of Jesus. It was a dried gum, and it was obtained from the balsam tree. And it had ceremonial uses, and it also had practical uses. Exodus chapter 30 mentions myrrh as an ingredient in the oil of holy anointment. But it also had medicinal qualities. You could use it in your oral health and also as a treatment for arthritis. Tell your doctor. The Jews used it to offer pain relief to those who were suffering. And finally, it was also used, listen up, in embalming and to anoint the dead. And of course, this points to Jesus' death. And this points to what Jesus is ultimately there to do which is die for the sins of the world. Because according to the Christian gospel, you can't have the manger without the cross. Because the manger always leads to the cross. 
what starts as a sweet story of a miracle baby being born, cuddled in his mom's arms, ends with his mother at the foot of the cross watching her son crucified. But this was his purpose. This is why he didn't defend himself before Pilate and the religious officials. Because Jesus understood that the Christmas gospel includes the cross. And willingly he shed his blood to destroy the sins of the world, to forgive your sins and mine, and to give us everlasting life, a free gift of Jesus Christ. We can't have the beauty and the majesty and the awe of Christmas without remembering the story of Good Friday. The manger always leads to the cross. Here's the funny thing about the story. Herod believed in the prophecy of the Messiah. Herod believed it. Herod believed in the prophecy of the Messiah. He just didn't have faith in it because it was going to cost him something. It might cost him his power. It might cost him his throne. It might prevent him from being a type of dictator to the Jewish people because there would be one above him. Herod believed in the prophecy, but he didn't have faith in it because belief and faith are not the same thing. He believed in it so much that he was willing to murder a village filled of babies because it threatened his empire and it threatened his power and it threatened his rule. Because belief and faith are not the same thing. The Magi brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, but they brought three other gifts. And I don't want you to miss this. This is in verse 10 of Matthew 2. And these are the the three takeaways that I want us to have this Christmas. It says that when they saw the star, the Magi were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They had joy, they had humility, and they had worship. These are the other three gifts that they gave the Christ child. Christian friends, think about your your own life this Christmas. Who needs some joy out there? I know know we got to find it too, because sometimes it's missing from our lives. But when you have faith in Christ and you recognize, you have gratitude for everything that's in your life, when you notice that there's actually more than you thought, there's even some abundance in your life, I think it should lead us to spread some joy out there for somebody who's struggling, for somebody who needs something. And sometimes it can be as simple as one of our Christmas offerings this year, which is we're we're asking you to help us to fill a food bank so that people have food. Something as simple as canned chili or canned tuna. Something as simple as that can take some pressure off somebody. Spreading a little joy. Who on your block, who in your neighborhood needs a little joy? Who in your life? God can put that on your heart. We'll let the Spirit work on each of us to say, how can I spread a little joy? And how can I make sure there's a lot of joy in my family's Christmas? The other thing that they brought to Christ was their humility. They bowed down before him. And Christians, this is the most important thing that we can share with the world. We need to be humble in front of the, the, the world. 
It's why we open worship and we confess our sins because we want to be humble. We want to be the first ones to be humble. How can we expect any moral behavior from the world when we don't first expect it of ourselves and when we admit our own brokenness, that we are fallen first? It's a gift that they bring. The Magi, they're just awestruck by the Christ child. They have joy, but immediately they're brought to humility before him. They bow down before him. And when we can bring that sort of humility to the world around us and also to God, God's able to do something amazing in our life. And our example to the world is so much more powerful. They also brought Jesus worship. And when I think of worship as a Christian, we talk about this a lot in my house. One of the reasons we love Christmas so much in my house is because our life centers around the church. It centers around the church. And we love Christmas because at Christmas, here's some stuff that's so true. Messiah is very full. The room is full. And everybody sings. And I I know everybody's supposed to sing and worship every Sunday. But at Christmas, there's something that happens. Maybe it's the carols. Maybe, it, maybe it's just all the joy that's in the room. But everybody sings. And for us as, as a Christian family who, who wants to help lead the church and, 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 and has dedicated our lives to the church, it brings us so much joy to hear that worship. And I really believe that worship is the thing that the devil fears the most. Because worship lifts up Christ. And when you lift up Christ, evil cannot stand. It is at the name of Jesus that demons flee from people. It's that simple. When you hear about the office of an exorcist or something like that, the Bible just tells us it is the name of Jesus that they fear. And when Christians, when we lift up, when we worship God, something powerful can happen in the world. And so just, I I just want to ask each of you, Who needs an invitation? Who of your neighbors, who of your friends needs an invitation to that kind of worship this Christmas? Extend it to them because it's our great gift to the world. We're worshiping God and we're lifting God up in front of everybody else. Joy, humility, and worship. I want to unwrap our gift for today. This is a gift I'm pretty excited about. I had this idea because it just always makes me happy. The gift for today are Christmas rubber duckies. (laughs) Christmas rubber duckies. We have different ones, so hopefully on your way out, you're going to grab one that that really, this this one's kind of like a snowman, kind of like frosty, and this one's kind of like a a reindeer, so here you go. Yeah, here you go. Yeah, there you go. Oh, it's bouncing around. Perfect. It it just makes me happy, so I, I don't know where you need to put the rubber duck. Are we fighting over a rubber duck? Oh, my goodness. We're going to have an all-out war in here. I don't know where you need to put your rubber duck. Is it in the morning in front of your mirror and you're getting ready for another hard day? You're anticipating something that's going to happen and it's just stressing you out a little bit? Put the rubber duck in front of your mirror. Is it on that commute or next week when all that, I don't know, cold? They're saying snow. You need to put it on your dashboard just for a little joy? Or is there somebody who just needs a rubber duck and so you find somebody that you want to give it to? Clean us out this morning. 
take them. Give them out. Put them in your life. Remember the joy of Christmas. Don't let it get swallowed up by any else of the busyness of the season. Let the joy of Christmas fill you up. A few years ago, I became a Jeep owner. Actually, I, actually, my wife became a Jeep owner, and I became a Jeep oil changer. And it wasn't until I became a Jeep oil changer that I learned about the rubber duck thing. It began in Ontario just two years ago, in 2020, when a Jeep owner decided to do something to brighten both her and a stranger's day. She went, bought a little rubber ducky, and put the duck on a nearby Jeep. She just wanted to spread a little joy. And when I became a Jeep oil changer, I started to notice that our Jeep had ducks as well on it. You know, that's how a movement gets started. That simple. One woman, two years ago, with one act of kindness, and then a movement started, and now everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. And it's everywhere. That's what you can spread this Christmas. That's what, that's what one act of kindness, that's what one sign of joy can do for the world. So what gifts, what gifts can we offer Christ? And what gifts can we offer the world?